joy to welcome you to the house of the Lord. We join David who has said it so many times and you'll continue to say it so many times when you read it so clearly in the scripture. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Back in 1980, this church was organized. And when it was organized as pastor, I wanted to give it a motto, somewhat of a business ring to it. A motto that would let anybody and everybody know what we're about in this church. And that motto reads thusly, where truth transcends tradition. Where truth transcends tradition. It really doesn't make a whole lot of difference how you're governed by, by tradition. Truth is far more important. And we're going to have a, an example of that in the message this morning. We're in a series of studies on the book of Jonah. And uh, I do so love to read that book. It's kind of short. You can read it over and over and over again. And quite frequently you'll run across some things in it you didn't catch the first time that you read it. But we're looking this morning at Jonah chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. And then we're going to use the cross-reference of Matthew 12, verse number 40. This is being read out of the King James Bible. I know no other that I trust. Always preach out of the King James Version of the Bible. Jonah 1, 15 through 17. We may pick up that 14th verse and read it. And then Matthew chapter 12, verse number 40. I want to speak this morning on the subject of the myth of Good Friday. The myth of Good Friday. And the word myth has a synonym. The tradition of Good Friday. Everybody does it because it is traditionally practiced. Now in Jonah chapter number 1, verses 14 through 17, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So, they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The cross-reference 
We turn to it quite often in the book of Jonah because our Lord made reference to Jonah in his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 12, verse number 4, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Jonah was, so shall the Son of Man be. Jonah gives us a picture, a representation of how the Lord is going to die. It's very important that you keep those references together. My, it was a terrible, terrible time for Jonah, and he deserved every minute of it. While on this earth, Jesus Christ was a man of miracles. You cannot study the life of Christ without seeing a display of his miraculous God-given powers. For instance, his virgin birth. That means that he was born of spirit conception, not human conception. That's never happened to another individual. That's a miracle. It is a miracle. His sinless life. Can you imagine what it would be like to live without sin? Now, some folks have the erroneous conception that they already have reached that plateau. That they no longer live and sin. But we know better, don't we, church? Amen. Our Lord Jesus never thought a bad thing, that by bad I mean an erroneous thing, iniquitous thing. Our Lord Jesus Christ never participated in any wrong, any sin whatsoever. He was sinless. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a miracle. His vicarious death, he bore the sins of God's elect and he paid the price for each one of God's elect. The word vicarious means in place of. Christ did not die for himself, nor did he die because he did something wrong. Christ Jesus took the sins of God's people upon himself and he became sin for us who knew no sin. Well, how many of God's elect did he die for? Every last one of them. Not every person in the world, but every one of whom it pleased the Father before the worlds were ever established to place his love on a people that would become the people of God by coming to Christ and by being saved. That's a miracle. His bodily resurrection. We think about that only in maybe March or April whenever Easter comes along. We ought to think about it every day. The, when's the last time you saw somebody raised from the dead? I mean, they claim that they were raised from the dead, but I wasn't there. And if I had been there, I wouldn't have seen them raised from the dead. Only one. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. His literal ascension back into heaven. When the disciples looked up and saw him as it were, he vaporized before their very sight, going back into heaven. And what about the miracle of the second coming? He's coming again one day from heaven back to this earth. Jesus Christ was a man of miracles. Now Jonah 
is a book of miracles as well. I pointed this out closing the message last Sunday. We were kind of rushed for time, but you need to jot these references down. Uh, all the many things in the book of Jonah that were prepared for Jonah by the Lord. Number one, there was a prepared storm in Jonah chapter one, verse number four. The Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. God prepared a fish to swallow up Jonah in verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord prepared a great fish. You say, well, how do you know he did that? The Bible says so. The Bible says, says so. To swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There was a prepared salvation that Jonah speaks of in chapter 2, verse number 9, where Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. If a man's ever saved, God's going to have to do it. Man cannot save himself. There's a prepared gourd in chapter 4, verse number 6. Then said the Lord to Jonah, verse number 6, the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. It was a large vegetation vine, if you please. And then God prepared a worm. Not worms, plural, but one worm ate the whole gourd. God prepared that worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass in verse number 8, God prepared a strong east wind. God prepared a vehement east wind, a deafening east wind, probably like unto a severe, a severe tornado. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted wished in himself to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So the Lord Jesus was a man of miracles. Jonah was a book of miracles as well. The book of Jonah is a portrayal. It is a representation. It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Jonah was, so shall the Son of Man be. Now, this was a terrible storm that God sent on that ship where Jonah was asleep down in the hull of the ship. Storms provide uncertainty. Now, we've been having some workers and employees uh, from various companies in Tyler to come and work on our church building. Well, I'll tell you what, they all showed up the day we had the storm here. This I don't know whether it stormed at your house or not. I tell you, we haven't had a rain like that in a long time. Noah was talking to me about it this last week, about what a big, big storm that was. Well, I tell you what, they were scrambling because it was uncertain. They were trying to put a roof on the building. Oh, by the way, you'll enjoy this. They wanted to come into the building because they figured it was the best time to check for leaks. 
It's when it's raining. And they went through this whole entire building. Did you know there was only one room in this building that was leaking? And there's a pastor study. <laughs> That's right. I was in there studying about the Lord, and I heard this go blip, blip, blip. And the next thing I knew, they charged in like the Calvary with their buckets and put it under the drip. But what I'm saying is this, storms provide uncertainty. They provide fear. They provide insecurity. People out in West Texas have come to believe that their salvation sometimes is in a storm cellar. We have more of those out in West Texas than we see in East Texas. When the storm hit the ship where Jonah was sleeping, and the mariners began to do everything in their power to save themselves. They cried out unto their gods. That's religion. And they were religious. They had a religion. And they figured that their gods were able to save them from the storm. They cried out to their gods. That's religion. They threw away all of their personal items. Because they didn't want the ship to sink. So anything that was aboard the ship that needed to go over aboard, at that time they had not considered Jonah so much. But there were some other things. The Bible says they cast forth their wares. They cast forth their clothes and their weapons and their jewels and their possessions and their stuff. That's what you call reformation. Brother, they were getting rid of the junk that they didn't really need in a time like this. And they called upon guess who? Preacher Jonah to pray. Their self-righteousness in asking someone else to call on his God. And they rode as hard as they could. In verse number 13, the Bible plainly makes this statement. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. And finally... Jonah told them it was imperative that he die if deliverance was to come in verse number 12. I want to say that again. Jonah makes it clear that he was to die. Jonah says, take me up, cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Remember last week I gave you a cross-reference where Caiaphas over in the New Testament was judging the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John 18 verse 14, Caiaphas said this, He gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Jonah's got to go. Jonah must die. In the Old Testament, remember, there were two goats on the Day of Atonement. Both goats were not killed. Only one goat was killed. It was called the Lord's goat. The goat that was spared was called the scapegoat. It was expedient that an animal die for the sins of the people. Had the people sinned? Yes, they had. Had Jonah sinned? Yes, he had. If atonement is to come, it must come by one man. And you go over to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that one man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. When Jonah died, guess what happened? Storm ceased. 
The storm ceased in verse number 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. They considered Jonah a dead man when they threw him overboard. You'll never make me believe that they said, you know what, we just believe if we give old Jonah a bath, things will get better around here. We'll just kind of dip him down in the water of the sea. No, they were going to kill him. They were going to take his life. They considered Jonah a dead man when they threw him overboard. And moreover, Jonah himself considered himself a dead man when they threw him overboard. Jonah was in trouble with God. Have you ever been there? Now, I'm not going to tell you till you tell me first. Have you ever been there? Jonah was in trouble with God. The thing that made it so bad was not the storm and not the hungry fish. It was broken fellowship with God. Jonah had to face his trouble alone. Loneliness, dear church, can be a terrible thing when you think that nobody cares and nobody knows and nobody has the burden that you have. It can be an awful, awful experience. And Jonah was having to face the whole thing alone. The very personality that could not only have helped him, but save him from all this dilemma. He didn't want to have anything to do with him, and he ran from him to get away from him. What a terrible thing to meet the storms of life without the presence of God. Jonah was running, but he was running all in vain. He got on a boat headed for Tarshish. God stopped him with a storm. He went to sleep, but God woke him up. He went overboard to drown, but God raised him from the dead. There's a passage in Proverbs 15, 3, that says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You cannot get away from the eyes of the Lord. You cannot. Not only does he know who you are and where you are, but he knows everything you're going to do before you ever do it. God knows. And that was the situation with Jonah. Now then I know you are anxiously awaiting for the myth of Good Friday. <laughs> the myth of Good Friday. What does the Bible say? Jonah 1, verse 17 the second part of verse 17 says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so said our Lord. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the Good Friday myth? It is tradition. It is opinion. And I would like to quickly spell it out for your understanding. 
Jesus Christ supposedly was crucified and buried on Friday. He stayed in the tomb until early Sunday morning. Just before daylight on Sunday, Christ arose from the dead. And this has led to the Easter sunrise service that many churches participate in on Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Christ. Now, what is the reasoning for that fallacy? Take a moment to turn to John 19, verse 31. That's the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 19, verse 31. What is the reason behind that thinking? Notice John 19, 31 says this. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. If the next day was Saturday... If the next day was Saturday, then Christ had to be crucified on Friday. So they say. Where did Good Friday originate? Where did it come from? How did it get into the picture? Number one, it was instigated by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Constantine was emperor of the Roman Empire in the 300s, that's 300 A.D. He united the church at that time with the state. He declared Friday before the crucifixion as Good Friday. He gave us the name for it. A Roman emperor did that. Not only was it instigated by Constantine, it was promulgated, it was scattered about by Roman Catholicism. It is a matter of fact that the Roman church has down through the ages made Good Friday and Easter as its two most holy days. It was instigated by Constantine it was promulgated by Roman Catholicism and it was masticated by the Protestant Reformation. What do you mean it's masticated? That means they chewed it up and digested it and spread it everywhere. Over the years since 1500, the Protestants, and may I remind you, if you're a member of Grace Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas, you're not a Protestant. The Lord Jesus Christ did not begin the Protestant church movement. There was another church he had started early on, and it was a baptizing church. Now, don't get mad. If you do, we, we won't get anything accomplished here. 
but it was masticated by the Protestant Reformation. The myth of Good Friday exposed a correct understanding of John 19:31. We just read it to you. Notice the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day, not every Sabbath day, but that particular Sabbath day was a high day. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The Sabbath day was a high day. I looked up that word high in the Greek, brother Phil. It is the English word M-E-G-A-S. Well, really, it's the English translation of it. Megas. Have you ever heard of a mega church? It's an enlargement. It is a special emphasis. There's more time and more work and more preparation put into a mega church than is put into a just regular congregation. In a regular congregation, I like to think we're regular. I sure hate to think we're irregular. But in a regular congregation like Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, the only preparation we have is, y'all come! Be here! But in a mega church, you got to have all the sound equipment working perfectly. you got to have big uh, screens up. you got to have people singing from the screens. And re- it is an enlargement. We're not talking about the Decalogue Sabbath here. We're talking about the high day Sabbath. The day before Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. That Sabbath day was a high day. There were two kinds of Sabbath days. Number one was the Decalogue Sabbath. That's every seventh day throughout the year. That's the seventh day. God completed the creation in six days, but on the seventh day, God rested and included in the the Ten Commandments that we're to remember the Sabbath day, the Decalogue Sabbath, every Saturday, not Sunday, every Saturday was the Decalogue Sabbath. But the other was called High Day Sabbaths. And he's talking here about a High Day Sabbath in John chapter number 19, verse number 31. It was called also a Preparation Day. No preparation was needed for the Saturday Sabbath other than maybe the preparation of food. There's certain foods you just can't eat on Sabbath if you belong to that particular religion. But high Sabbath days must be prepared for. In John 19, look at verse 14. John 19, verse 14. Let me read it for you. And it was the preparation of the Passover 
about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. It was a Passover Sabbath. It was a Passover Sabbath. Look also at verse number 31 again. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, and so forth, Pilate said, break their legs uh, that they might die quickly. And in notice verse 42, there laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Now let's look at this more than one Sabbath. Take, if you would, your Bible in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter number 3. I said there were two kinds of Sabbaths, the Decalogue Sabbath and the High Day Sabbaths, plural. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say unto them concerning the feast of the Lord, which shall be proclaimed to be these feasts now, these holy days will be holy convocations, holy gatherings coming together. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. But now he's going to destroy, uh, define a distinction or make a distinction between these high holy convocations. Notice there are several of them. They're called Passover Sabbaths. The first one is. In verse number four, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which shall proclaim in their season. In the 14th day of the first month, even is the Lord's Passover. The first one, the first Sabbath, apart from the Decalogue Sabbath, but it involved the Decalogue Sabbath, was the Lord's Passover. It was followed, second of all, by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verse 6. On the 15th day of the same month, one day later, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Notice verse number 9. It's the feast called the first fruits. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying to them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, you shall reap the harvest thereof. You will bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Notice they did not do that on the Decalogue Sabbath. This is a different Sabbath, a high day Sabbath. And notice in verse number 16, the feast called Pentecost. It's called technically here the Feast of 50 Days because the word 50 means Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, or the 50th day. Even unto the number after the seventh Sabbath shall you number. Notice the seventh Sabbath. The, the, the Sabbath of the Decalogue came during this time. They, they, they worshiped the Lord on this Decalogue Sabbath, but it also included the Feast of Pentecost 
or the Sabbath of Pentecost. There was another day involved in all of this celebration, and it was called the Feast of Pentecost. The fifth one is found in verse 24. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you'll have a Sabbath. There it is. The first day of the month shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing trumpets and holy convocations. They do that on the Decalogue Sabbath. It's another Sabbath we're talking about. It's a holy day, a high day. It's called the Feast of Trumpets. And then the Day of Atonement was registered on the 27th verse. Also on the 10th day of the 7th month, there shall be a Day of Atonement. It shall be an holy convocation. The Day of Atonement shall be a holy convocation under you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And finally, the seventh one is mentioned in verse 34. Pardon me. That is correct. Verse number 34. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Not just on the seventh day, but for seven straight days it was a Sabbath. He speaks further about it in verse 42. You'll dwell in booths. How long? Seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. You don't do that on Saturday. That's a Decalogue Sabbath. We're talking about the Feast of Booths. You had this Sabbath going on for seven days. It was a high day. It was a mega day. And it is to be distinguished from the Decalogue Sabbath. Thursday, in this setting, was the Passover Sabbath. Friday, the next day, was the unleavened bread Sabbath that came 24 hours later. Saturday was the Decalogue Sabbath. That the week that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, there was not just one Sabbath on Saturday, there were several Sabbaths, plural. My, 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 where does the time go? Take a minute to look at Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Please, Mark 16, verse 1. It says there, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. It should have been translated when the Sabbaths are passed. Now, why did not the translators make that change when it was inscribed and canonized? Instead of Sabbath singular, why did they not say it should be Sabbaths plural? Answer, there is no Greek word in the New Testament for Sabbaths plural. Whenever you are reading about Sabbath, it'll always be in the singular 
although it might involve other Sabbaths, but there was no Greek word for Sabbaths, plural. Therefore, it was translated correctly, Sabbath, when the Sabbath. But it should, knowing what we know that from these other studies, that it was more than one Sabbath when the Sabbaths were passed. The Lord Jesus was dead and in the tomb for three Sabbaths. The Passover Sabbath, the Unleavened Bread Sabbath, and then the Decalogue Sabbath. One came on Thursday, one came on Friday, one came on Saturday. The Lord Jesus Christ was dead and in the tomb for three Sabbaths. He fulfilled all three in his death on the cross when he said, it is finished. We no longer need the Passover sacrifice. We no longer need the unleavened bread. We use it in the Lord's Supper, but apart from that, we don't need the feast of unleavened bread. And we no longer need the Decalogue Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath. And he fulfilled it himself when he died. He fulfilled it all in his death and resurrection. The necessity of a Wednesday crucifixion. May I speak to you about that? When you compare John, uh, me, Jonah 1.17 with Matthew 12.40, the Good Friday myth cannot account for three days and three nights. You know, I've had a lot of people on this subject, ask me questions about the narrative of the fish story and about Christ and what relationship was there. I've never had a one of them to, to say to me, do you really believe that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? It's always, do you believe that Jesus Christ was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights? If I ask you a question, class, if I may call you that, in Jonah 1.17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. How long was he in the belly of the fish? Well, now, just wait a minute. Let me get my calculator out here. We're going to get this thing all figured out. It's simple. Three days, three nights. How long was Christ in the heart of the earth? Three days and three nights. Where three, the number three, is used in Matthew 12.40 comes from the Greek word tria, T-R-I-A, from which we get our word trio. Brother Roger? We're going to have a trio this morning. And two people get up and sing and sit down. You say, there's something wrong with that. Why is that? Because three is three. Now we've got a bunch of so-called school teachers that really don't know anything teaching new math and say, well, now three doesn't necessarily mean three. <laughs> one is one. Two is two. Three is three. Not a portion or a part. 
in Matthew chapter 17, verse number 4, on the transfiguration experience of the disciples when Christ was transfigured before their eyes, Peter said, let us make three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Christ. What he did not say is, we're running short on material. And we're going to make one for Moses. We're going to cut down Elijah a little bit there. And we're going to have to make the Lord. He, it kind of looks like it. There were three bodily tabernacles he's talking about. Three means three. That's why I began this service by saying we have a motto that truth always transcends tradition. Is anything left? Yeah, a little bit left. Not much. Jesus Christ was crucified on Wednesday. Keep in mind the Jewish clock begins with the evening first and then the morning. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. It says the evening and the morning were the first day. Not the morning and the evening, but the evening and the morning. The Jewish day starts at 6 o'clock p.m. our time. The Jewish day did not begin until Friday evening at 6 o'clock into Saturday. Saturday began at that particular time. Where our clock goes from 12 to 12, the Jewish clock goes from 6 to 6. His body was placed in the tomb by 6 o'clock Wednesday. It lay in the tomb all day Thursday. That's 24 hours. His body was still in the tomb all day Friday. That's 24 more hours. His body was still in the tomb all day Saturday until 6 o'clock that evening, which ended Saturday, Jewishly speaking. That's 24 hours. And 24, and 24, and 24 comes up with 72 hours. He arose from the dead any time after 6 o'clock on Saturday. Please keep that in mind, church. Because that started the next day at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. 72 hours. If Christ was not in the tomb for three days and three nights, neither was Jonah in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you're going to alter one of them, you're going to have to be consistent and alter all of it. What is the gospel of Jonah? Christ died. Jonah died. What is the gospel of Jonah? Christ was buried. Jonah was buried. What is the gospel of Jonah? Christ was raised and Jonah was raised. Hope you'll come back next Sunday. We'll go a little bit further in the book of Jonah, which is the classic example the Lord gave concerning his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Not a Friday crucifixion, but a Wednesday crucifixion.
Let's stand please for prayer.